Hey, why don't you get your Bibles out and let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and uh, dive into what the Lord has for us today. Come on up, Billy. Billy's going to read for us. We're in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're starting to read in verse 3. And uh, I think we'll have it on the screen. What do you think, guys? There we go. This is a passage we've been talking about for the last month or so. We've been talking about change. And is change possible? Can we really experience a change in our lives? Because so many of us would like to see change in certain areas of our lives to where we even imagine this promised land that I could get to if I could just change. If I could change a couple things, I could get there. And we believe that once I change and get into the PL, promised land, keep up, <clears throat> then, then life is going to be what I want it to be or expect it to be or need it to be or desire it to be, that I want to get to that good place. But is that possible? Because so many of us fight for change and so seldom it happens. So we're going through a series this fall on how to experience real change according to Scripture. So, you all know Billy? Does anybody not know Billy? Yeah. Wow, we got one person in the back that doesn't know you, Billy. Who are you? Billy. Okay, y'all can meet after the service. All right. Second Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9. Uh, his divine power has given us everything we need for godly life. Okay, let's stop there. Because what we talked about was that to begin with, we have to realize that through Christ, change has already taken place. And the Christian journey isn't trying to generate change as much as it's trying to bring to reality the change that has already happened. Because he just said he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. But why does it feel like I don't have everything for life and godliness? Why does it often feel like my pockets are empty when it comes to living life, especially when it comes to godly life, all right? Could you just answer that question before you begin, Billy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, okay, it's keep coming reading. Up. I'm sorry. All right. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Go back just for a second. Because, see, we've already escaped the corruption in the world. So how do we begin to understand that we have everything for life and godliness? We begin by participating in the divine. When I'm participating in the divine, it awakens me. Paul talks a lot about open your eyes, awaken sleeper. You know, he talks a lot of this language, take off, put on, so that we can see when we participate with the divine, we see all that we have for life and godliness. You with me? Okay. Billy, who's going to win the game today? That's coming up in verse 9. All right, thank um, you. <laughs> for this very reason, make every effort to add to your own faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Thank you, Billy. That was awesome. The best reading ever. Because, you know, what we see here is how do I participate in the divine? If this is key for me to see that I have everything for life and godliness, 
we see, can you put that back up there again? Is I do this through faith. Now, last week we unpacked some of the myths of faith. That faith is not heaven money. It's not the currency that I use with God to where Jesus died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, and he has salvation and everything for me if I'll just trade my faith for that. So I dig up faith somewhere and I bring it to the equation, and in exchange for my faith, God gives me himself. We went through scripture last week and we saw that faith is actually a gift from God. That God actually comes to me and gives me the gift of faith that I can use now to access the grace. Matter of fact, I want you to think about faith as having hands for the first time to actually be able to receive the grace, which includes all that we need for life and godliness, from God. Now, what Peter is trying to help us understand in this passage, which I like to call gospel arithmetic, because he says, add to your faith goodness, then add to your goodness knowledge, on and on. And we're going to walk through these because I think that this procession is intentional. Is he saying that I, I now get to add something to my faith? Now, faith was a gift to me. What do I get to add to faith? In a way that ignites faith. And he says, goodness. See, what he's saying is when I take faith and I combine it now with action, it equals something explosion or an explosive reality in my life. The theologian Martin Luther put it this way. Let your faith break out before the people, that it may be zealous to serve, busy, powerful, active, and accomplish much. You know what's interesting about the way that Peter is saying this is he didn't put knowledge before goodness. He actually puts goodness before knowledge. What he's really saying is, I want you to follow the Lord. I want your life to have actions of faithfulness to what God is calling you to, even before you fully understand what he's calling you into. It's crazy because what Peter's not calling us to is a theological or a moral agreement with God. First, what he's calling us to is what is at the heart of every relationship. Trust. It's the foundation of every good relationship that you've got in your life. With my kids, if we don't have trust, there's a big problem in our relationship. In my marriage, if there's not trust, there's a big problem in our relationship. Trust is the the carriage underneath that gives stability to everything else I put in the relationship. Is that true? Do you all agree with that? Okay. Some of you uh, are not in relationships. I understand that. You're living alone on an island somewhere. The rest of us that have been in those, trust us here. Get it? Trust. If you've been around church for long, you've heard of uh, the tightrope walker Blondin. Have you all heard of him? He was the first guy in the 1800s that actually walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so the crowds gathered, and he, you know, he did his thing, you know, and, and got to the other side, and the crowd just, you know, Blondin. It's actually where we got the name blonde hair. No, it's not. All right. <clears throat> and so, just seeing how gullible you guys are this morning. Then this monster came up out of Niagara Falls and consumed him. Right, anyway, all right. And so, I've lost all credibility now. So, he, he walks across, and then 
He's, they're like, do it again, do it again. You know, the, the crowds get crazy like that. So he got a wheelbarrow this time and walked it across Niagara Falls. You know, the wind and the waves and the water, it's crazy. And everybody's like, oh, you're amazing. And then he put 150 pounds of concrete inside the wheelbarrow and walked it across. And people are like, oh, man, you're like amazing. And then he said, how many of you believe that I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and walk him across? And they're all like, you can do it, you can do it. And he goes, I need a volunteer. You know, it's interesting because everybody seemed to have faith in Blondin's ability to do that, but no one was able to put action with the faith. Now, we have to be really careful here because we're not saying here that faith isn't alive unless there's action to it. And we're not necessarily saying that action always shows fruit that there is faith. But there is a distinct connection between if I'm going to walk in faith and Peter's calling me to trust. And trust means are you willing to put action to what you believe? Are you willing now that Christ has set you free to participate with the divine when the Father says, follow me? You know, it's interesting. uh, When my kids were young, there were all kinds of things I was saying to them no to. You know, no, you can't have ice cream at 11 o'clock at night. You know, that's just not going to happen. You know, no, you can't run out and try to catch a car with your teeth. No, you can't play in the street. You know, no, 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 Trent, you can't stick your tongue in a socket. You know, and you know what kids do when you tell them no and they don't understand? What do they do? They stomp their feet and they whine and they go, why, why, why? Because they think somehow or another in their two-year-old logic, if I could understand why I can't stick my tongue in that socket, then I wouldn't want to stick my tongue in that socket. As parents, we know that's not necessarily true. And I was convinced when uh, we became parents, when Renee and I were young and I was stupid, and uh, that I wasn't going to be like my parents that I, wasn't gonna, I was not going to say these dreaded words when my kid said why. And what do you think those words were? Did y'all grow up in my house? <laughs> Isn't it true? You know, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. And so I would sit down and go, you know, Trent, the reason is electricity. Let me explain that to you. And when you stick your tongue in there, you know, it's, it would kill you. You know, it would shock you. At the least, you would lose your tongue. All right? And, and then at the end of it, what would he do? Can I stick my tongue in the socket? And it only took about, you know, 10 whys before I was saying, because I said so. You just have to trust me. And the Lord is starting with that. Peter is challenging us from the very beginning of saying, do you trust this God who now is so good and has given you everything for your life and godliness, will you trust him enough to say, because you said so, that's enough for me? Well, let's go to Colossians chapter 3, because the first direction that the Lord is saying, trust me in, the first direction he's saying, I want you to express goodness as a combination with your faith, is moral goodness. Colossians chapter 3, do we have that? Ah. You guys would not believe the chaos we've been in this morning. This overhead projector, that one, went out. The guys had to put this one and had to redo everything. It has been crazy, but they've done a great job. So I like, Aaron, how you started your own applause. That was beautiful. I 
have so much to learn from you. Put to death. Walk away from. Get it out of your life. Kill it. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, meaning the old is gone, the new has come. We're not living in the old anymore. We're not living alone anymore. We're not living in the depravity of our resources. Now we're living in the new man where we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, and we are participating with the divine, whether we see it or we don't. So put that to death. Walk into the newness. Whatever belongs to this old nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Peter is saying to us, when it comes to the areas of your life morally, trust the Lord. It's difficult. Because I'm telling you that simple things like your sexuality, it is so tempting to believe that your desires should be your guide when it comes to the expression of your own sexuality. How you believe that you've been made or what it is that you want in that. Or how about money? When it comes to money, it's so much easier to trust if I just had more, that would be better. And the undercurrent there is this fear that if I don't have enough, I'm not going to have what I need for life and godliness. And greed becomes the mantra of my life, even though I've covered it in Southern politeness. You know? Or how about this? Even my words. uh, Even my words... My attitudes and my emotions, boy, they seem to have such a loud voice in my life of saying, but this is how I feel. I feel this way, that for, therefore it legitimizes everything about me. Isn't that crazy? That God is saying to us, Midtown, those are poor gods. The God that where you are led by your sexuality, by your own desire, it is a poor God. It will not give you what it promises. That when you begin to view money as something that if you had more of it, you're going to be safer. That is a poor God. It doesn't fulfill. Or even your attitudes. They're all impersonators. And what they're really impersonating is that at the core of me oftentimes is, I don't want sexuality to be my God or money to be my God. I mean, I would really never say that to you. What I really want is I want to be God. I've been reading this week uh, this book by Jean Twig, Twinge, who uh, she took uh, 50 years, well, let's see here, no, 40 years of surveys and uh, wrote a book on what she discovered about the generation of people that were born in the 80s and the 90s. How many does that represent here? Okay. And 70s. How many more? Okay. If you were born in the 70s or later, disregard this because you're perfect. All right? She's talking about the, uh, she calls you the Gen Me generation. Let me explain. And she's one. She goes, uh, since Gen Meers were born, 
we've been taught to put ourselves first. Unlike the baby boomers, Gen Me's didn't have to march in a protest or attend a group session to realize that our needs and desires were paramount. Reliable birth control, legalized abortion, and cultural shift toward parenthood as a choice made us the most wanted generation of children in American history. Congratulations. Television, movies, and school programs have told Jen Mears that you were special from toddlerhood to high school, and we believed it with a self-confidence that approaches boredom. I mean, why talk about it? It's just the way things are. This blasé attitude is very different from the boomers' focus on introspective and self-absorption. Jen Me is not self-absorbed. Jen Me's are self-important. We take it for granted that we're independent, special individuals, so we don't really even need to think about it. So this girl, he wrote this brilliant, she's not a Christian, that I know of. I mean, she's just writing this from a sociological perspective. She goes on to talk about the, the impact of growing up in a Gen Me generation where your self-importance is the most important thing that you could possibly adhere to. What's true to you? What do you want? She goes, narcissism is the dark side of the focus on the self and is often confused with self-esteem. Self-esteem is often based on solid relationships with others, whereas narcissism comes from believing that you are special and more important than other people. Many of the school programs designed to raise self-esteem probably raise narcissists instead. Lillian Katz, a professor of early childhood education at the University of Illinois, wrote an article entitled, All About Me, Are We Developing Our Children's Self-Esteem or Their Narcissism? She writes, many of the practices advocated in pursuit of high self-esteem may instead inadvertently develop narcissism in the form of excessive preoccupation with oneself. Because the school programs emphasize being special, Rather than encouraging friendships, we may be training an army of little narcissists instead of raising kids' self-esteem. She goes on to give an example. Let's see if you can remember this. She gave the example of uh, a contestant on American Idol who was so terribly bad but then rose to national fame. Who is it? William Hung. Do you remember the song he sang? She bangs, that's right. Does anybody want to come up here and sing it for us? You know, what's, what's crazy is that Simon Cowell, you know, he got skewered in the, in the press because he was, sign, or, uh, uh, rewind, let's start over. William Hung said, hey, I am happy with myself because I did my best. And my best should be good enough to make me a famous singer. And Simon Cowell said, uh, he said, you're not living in good self-esteem. You're living in good self-delusion. But it's an example she gives in the book of talking about how we have become a prisoner of the words, what do you want for your life? In other words, she said, we've been taught since we were little kids that you can be anything you want to be. And it has created a prison. Let me tell you what I think that prison is about. Because when I'm told from the time I'm a little kid that I can grow up to be anything I want, 
then I start to believe that what I want is the most important thing I could ever aspire to in my life. And I go on this journey of trying to discover, well, what is it that you do want? Do you know what you want? Sometimes I can't even tell Renee where I want to go eat dinner. I say, what I really want to do is just serve you, Renee. Where do you want to go eat? And she goes, wherever you want to eat. Let's go where you want to eat. I don't know where I want to eat. And then it turns into this beautiful fight. (laughs) See, the reason sometimes it's so confusing about trying to figure out what it is that we want, because a lot of us have had the experience where you actually get what you want, and then you realize, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, because, you know, be careful what you ask for because you may get it, and then realize that what you wanted really wasn't what you ever wanted really at all. And what do you do when you spend a lifetime to get what you want, and once you get it, you don't want it anymore? You start to realize something's true, and I'm going to let you in a little secret. God made us in His image, and guess what He made us for? Not to live our lives for what we want. God made us in His image so that we could live our lives according to what He wants for us. In other words, in Scripture and in church places, we call that God's will. And God's will for our lives isn't something that we go out and find. Matter of fact, there's nowhere in Scripture where it talks about that if I just work harder, that I'm going to find God's will. God's will, we find in Scripture, is a revelation from God to us. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifice so that you can get yourself in a place to where you can clearly see what God's will is for your life. Romans 12, 1. And the beautiful thing is that when I obey, when I come and bring to my faith obedience and goodness, what I'm opening myself up to is more revelation of God. That's why Peter said, add to your faith, radical obedience. That word radical is so overused, isn't it? Radical. Really, it means, are you willing to trust? Morally, are you willing to say to God, I'm going to let you define these for me? And I'm going to trust that your definition is a good definition because you say you're good. And my experience with you is that you're good. I'm going to listen. Where you go, I will follow. What you say is true, I'll shape my world around it. I will trust you more than I trust even myself. I was reading this week, uh, Dan Dennett. He's a philosopher and a well-known atheist. And he was talking, he was giving a lecture actually on how he has... uh, some real concerns with Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. I don't know if you've ever read this. Rick Warren is a pastor out in California who wrote this book that sold the gazillion copies. And, and he goes through some of the quotes that he makes, and he says, you know, I, this is a difference of opinion. Rick and I are different here. We're different here, different here. Now, he's a renowned atheist, and he says, but here is where I stop with Rick Warren. Here's the biggest issue that I have with him. And he put this quote up on the screen. This is Rick Warren saying this in his uh, purpose-driven book. Surrendered people obeys God's word even when it does not make sense. Dan Dennett said, I cannot do that. And he thinks that this is intellectual suicide that we create when we come to a relationship. We're going to talk about that next week when we add to our goodness knowledge. But what he doesn't understand and what Peter is trying to get us to is the heart of trust. The heart of a relationship, do we trust the Lord? 
And it's hard morally because I want to be my own God. I even have the ability to twist God's word to make it say what I want it to say to, me, to fit my lifestyle. But if you're having a hard time swallow that one, hang on to this. Because it's not just morally that God is calling us to goodness. It's the goodness that he's calling us to goodness. And what I mean by that is social goodness. Let's go to James chapter 2, verse 14. Do we have that? We're there. At fast. But you can go there in your Bibles if you want. This is uh, James talking. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And you know what? That's, that's not James talking. No, let's, let's go to the Bible. We, we put Second Peter up with James. It's okay. Anybody have that yet? James? Somebody like to come up and read it? Okay, nobody. All right. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And when he says it, he's talking about his faith there. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Really? Okay, let's zip over to Matthew. Let's hear what Jesus has to say about this. Jesus, at the end of chapter 25, is talking about standing in heaven and uh, on the throne of God and the judgment seat of God, and he has separated all the people that are gathered in front of that throne to his right of the sheep and to the left of his goats. Uh, don't have time to explain all of it. Just trust me, you don't want to be a goat, all right? Sheep are good, goat are bad, all right? And he's talking about this separation, and they're asking him about this separation, like, how is it that we got into the goat category? Like, what did we do? And Jesus said to them, Then he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or in need, needing clothes or sick and in prison, and did not help you? And he replied, these are strong words. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, you hear that and you go, okay, wait a minute. So you're telling me that Jesus is going to let people in heaven because they took care of the poor. And people that had no concern for the poor, he's sending them to hell. And that's just so confusing because at the beginning of this sermon, we talked about how it's through Christ and Christ alone that I'm saved. 
It is through his work on the cross and through his resurrection and nothing that I do that I receive the grace of God. And it's because of his work alone, I stand before the Father righteous. Matter of fact, when I stand before the Father, I wear the righteousness of Christ, meaning all the perfection that Christ perfected in his life, he gives to me so that my record before the judgment throne of God is clean, 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 clear. Not because of anything I've done, everything that he's done. Does Jesus not know that? Like if he came to Midtown, would he go, wrong? Does the Bible contradict each other? I want you to hear this because this is just powerful because Jesus is saying to us is this. Let me back up. A lot of you come from faith traditions where all that's important is getting people in the kingdom. You know, if we can just get them down the aisle, if we can just get them baptized, if we can just get them saved, you know, and they call, we call that justification. The whole mission of our church is just, you know, save, 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 justified, justified, justification. But a lot of you come from churches where what really matters is caring for the poor. You know, what really matters is, you know, are you doing the things that appear to be godlike, you know? that we need to feed the hungry, we need to help the homeless. And there seems oftentimes to be a huge separation between these two, and it's like this extreme. You're either on one or the other. And what I want you to see here is that what Jesus is doing is he is connecting the two. He's saying their justification will always be connected to justice. They are not separate from one another. In other words, he's saying what Martin Luther said. He says, we're saved by faith alone, alone. But that faith is never alone. See, guys, I'm, if I am a branch and I'm in the vine, which Jesus talks about in John chapter 15, then the vine is sending all the nutrients through the branch so that I can produce fruit. If I'm connected to Jesus, if I am participating with the divine, there is Jesus juice flowing through me, all right? I just coined that. Somebody go save that donating name. You know, Jesus juice flowing through me. And what is Jesus juice doing? Jesus' juice looks so much like what Jesus just read. So much so that Jesus is saying, if your life is not an expression of justice, you might need to ask yourself if you know the same Jesus I do. He is so bold into saying that if your life does not care about anything else but you, you may not know Jesus. In James, later, he talks about this faith, and he says, you say you believe. That's great, you believe. Even the demons in hell believe, and they even tremble. So what's the difference between a demon in hell believing and me believing? If my belief moves me to faith and trust and saying, Lord, come into me, Wash me of my sins and then make me yours to where it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. But when Christ comes in and takes residence, let me tell you, your life is going to change. And ways it's going to change is we're going to begin to demonstrate goodness. See, Jesus didn't come to save us for heaven. Jesus came to make us alive. Alive, men and women. See, when Jesus came in, God comes in. He brings a new kingdom into me. He brings a new life into me. He brings a new heart into me. He brings a new set of priorities. 
He brings a new set of values into me. And when I participate with the divine, what begins to happen is it produces fruits of justice. My justification, where I have been transformed, transforms that I'm not just living for me anymore. I get to escape my narcissism. And now I actually get to see you. I got somebody I want you to see. Guys, I want to ask you a question. Can y'all see her? You need to get closer? I have a question I want you to participate with me in. How much do you think she weighs? <laughs> Seriously. Give me a number. 290. Woo! How many of you think more? Less? Give me another number. 240. 200. Okay. What else? Anybody else want to give a number? 270. I love it. How tall do you think she is? 5'2", 270, 5'2", she's a linebacker, Alabama. <laughs> what color do you think her hair is? Brown? Anybody think of something else? White? Red, maybe? Bald? She ain't got no hair. What kind of style do you think she wears her hair in? The bun? What? <laughs> Dreads. I love that. She is Jamaican. Yeah. Who made her dress? She didn't. She did not make her own dress. Who do you think made it? We have no idea, do we? You know what's amazing? And I, wanna, I want you, I'm about to tell you a story about this woman. And all the things that we just talked about has nothing to do with the story I'm about to tell you about her. How much she weighs, how tall she is, what kind of dress she wears, what color is her hair. But you know, those things right there, they obsess our lives. We've become so narcissistic that, that we say, who cares how much she weighs? Who cares how much you weigh? You do. We spend our whole lives consumed with things that don't matter at all. And when Jesus came... He said, you know, the first thing I'm rescuing you from is you. You're what keeps you from going into the promised land. You're listening to the wrong things. Therefore, you're loving the wrong things. And you're loving the wrong things so badly that you can't even hear when God says, here are the things that I love you about. <laughs> and so when the Lord says to me, hey, take up your cross and come and follow me, my narcissistic self goes, oh, no, no. I gotta die to me. <laughs> what does that mean? Take up your cross. It just sounds hard. But the new me, I mean, seriously, the new me that is alive with Christ in me, when I hear him say, Take up your cross and follow me, you must die to yourself if you want to really live. I don't hear that invitation of death. I hear that as an invitation of life. Because I've tasted this life, and let me tell you, man, I'm fed up with it. I'm tired of knowing how much she weighs and what she looks like or what her color of hair is. There's got to be more. And when Jesus is saying, when Peter says to us, put with your faith goodness, saying, God, I'm going to trust you more than my narcissistic whining self. You know, I'm going to trust you with every aspect of my life. How do you want me to define me? And then where are you taking me to go? 
I'm going to go. Because if you're not there, guess what? God, Jesus is about to get you guys in some hard situations. Because he just does that. Name's Elizabeth Fry. She was born in 1780 to a wealthy banking family. Her family started Barclay Bank. They had some bank. Privileged. Her clothes were not handmade by her, trust me. She grew up in a big house with a big family and lots of money. At age 19, she got married. Wow. Young, but not for the time. Over the next 15 years, she had 11 children. All survived. This is what she wrote in her journal at age 32 after giving birth to 11 children. I fear my life is slipping away to little purpose. God bless her. See, that's what kids will do to you, you know? They will suck cool and purpose right out of your life. I tell my kids all the time, I used to be fit and cool. I mean, like, when I was young, I was hip. And then we had you, and you just sucked it like a vacuum cleaner right out of me. I became just like my dad because I said so. Give me that remote control. My life has no purpose anymore. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I just So she has no worries. I mean, come on. She's got a lot of money. She's got this big house and she's busy with kids, you know, and telling the servants how to treat them, you know, and you know, and she's cleaning and you know, buying drapes and all this kind of stuff, you know, and uh just consumed with her little world. She's 32. She's already tired. When's it going to end? Okay, put on my tombstone. I did it. Then she went and heard this Quaker from America who came to Europe to preach. And something happened in that sermon. As a believer, she had never understood what it meant to participate with the divine. And she heard something in that sermon. And what she heard was a whisper. And that whisper was, come and follow me. She didn't know what to do with that. So she went up to this preacher after the sermon and she goes, hey, I kind of feel like like this Holy Spirit is speaking to me, like I, I'm supposed to like follow him? What, what do I do with that? He goes, awesome, come with me. So the next day they go to this huge facility. I'm sure it's probably twice the size of Rockettown. And they go to the gate, and there are guards at the gate. They're standing at the gate, and he goes, the pastor goes, we want to go in. And they go, no, 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 you don't want to go in there. And he said, no, we want to go in. He says, let me, let me tell you, if you cross this threshold, we cannot take responsibility for you at all. Because what's behind this gate is dangerous and could end your life. And he goes, no, we want to go in. And they said, no, you realize there are none of us in there. And they said, we, we want to go in. And Elizabeth, I'm sure, by this point is shaking. Good Lord, you know. Is Nezzy behind that gate? They opened the gate, and she walked into her first women's prison. Let me tell you about the women's prison in the early 1800s. When they threw women in prison, they gave them very little food, 
They gave them no clothes. They gave them no bed to sleep on. They didn't separate them, and they put no guards in the general compound. They just locked them into a big building until their time was up. And oh, by the way, if you had kids, guess what happened to your kids? They went to prison with you. She walked in to see this wild crowd of abused, hurting, hungry, poorly dressed, haven't slept women looking back at her with all their children. She sat with them. She talked to them. She heard their stories. She listened to them. And then she heard, come and follow me. She left that prison. She gathered all her rich friends together. And she goes, I need all your clothes. You need to go home and get me a bunch of food. I need a bunch of bedding. And I need you to give it all to me this week. She loaded all this up and took it back to the prison and said to the guards, let me in. And let me tell you what she started to do. That was a scandal to her social setting. She began to spend the night in the prisons. Because she said to them, your journey will be my journey. Because I hear the call of my Savior. And my justification is going to be linked to the justice that I'm going to fight for you because you are people and you're valuable. So her friends started to cheer her on at a healthy distance. She started the Association for the Improvement of the Female Prisons in Newgate. Catchy name, isn't it? (laughs) What a bad marketer she is. But she was a mighty prayer because she determined that the only way we're going to bring about real change, not just here at Newgate, but every women's prison all across England, is if Parliament got involved and said enough is enough, we're changing it and bringing reform. Problem was, nobody on Parliament cared, and no woman had ever spoken on the floor of Parliament. People said to her, it can't be done, it's never been done. What do you think she said? All I'm doing is following him. They opened up the floor of Parliament for her, and she ushered in great reforms. She started schools in these prisons for the kids so that when they got out of prison, they could have a life. She started nursing schools. Maybe you've heard of Florence Nightingale. Homeless shelters. Because when God began to stir in Elizabeth, it didn't stop at the prison. She was driving down the street one night in London and came across a teenage boy that was frozen dead in the streets who was homeless and had no place to go, and so he froze in the street. And she said, enough is enough, because God had lit a fire in her. And she said, I'm not here for me anymore. I'm here for a greater cause, and God, I will give myself to goodness. I am going to put my faith in a situation where you have got to show up. A lot of us go, man. Why wasn't I born like in the 1800s? I could wear old clothes like that. Nobody would care what I weighed. They didn't even have scales back then. Midtown, he's calling you to freedom because at least 963 million people go to bed hungry every night in the world that you live in. One billion people in this world live in slums. One woman dies every minute in childbirth. 
2.5 billion people have no access to adequate sanitation services. And as a result, 20,000 children a day die because of it. Here was Elizabeth Fry's prayer. Oh, Lord, may I be directed what to do and what to leave undone. Lord, may I be directed what to do and what to leave undone. Lord, will you teach me what to love and will you teach me what to stop loving? Will you teach me what to do where you're going? I'm going to follow you. And will you teach me to stop going to these other places? And so I want to challenge you today. You want to participate with the divine. Some of you this morning, it's going to look like repentance because morally you've gotten yourself in a fix that you know it's not where God wants you to be. And you've got to repent and put that down. Not to get fresh forgiveness because your father loves you and through Christ you've been forgiven. But we put it down and repent so that we can return back to our sanity to realize, God, you're good. Some of you this morning, maybe all of us need to repent. But some of you this morning, you're hearing the Elizabeth Fry. Come and follow me. It's time to get up. You think you have what you have just for you? Do you not realize that everything we have, the Lord has given to us? That means that everything I don't have is everything the Lord has said you don't need. <laughs> Stop loving. Why has he done that? It may be as simple as Elizabeth Fry saying to the Lord, you direct what I do and direct what to leave undone. Some of you may to say, need to say to the Lord this morning, by faith, Lord, I don't know what it means, but where you go, I'll go. Who you want me to love, I will love. And when I get in that messy women's prison, when I get in that place, maybe it's just your next door neighbor. You may be forgiving your wife. When you get into that place and you're saying, by goodness and faith, I'm participating with the divine, it is in that moment that you're going to see, oh, yeah, he's given me everything I need for life and godliness. I'm not alone. That makes sense? Let's pray. Father, Jesus, I so wish sometimes that, <laughs> that you were more like me. Because there's a part of me that just wants to be comfortable. I just want this to be easy. I just want what I want. And you keep calling me to life. You keep calling me to breathe the new air of the new man, to live by faith. You keep calling me out of the comfort zone, just like you did Elizabeth Fry. And you say, come and follow me. I thank you that in Jeremiah 33.3, you make promises there. Promises that people in this room need to hear. And you know who they are, Father. Reveal to us yourself. Lead us in that way. Lead us in repentance, but also leading us, lead us in willingness. For your glory, awaken us. Amen. Now, 
before we go into the first song, I know a lot of you are used to going to church, and church can sometimes be just, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, now's the music. Uh, let me tell you why, we, why we're about to do what we're about to do. We really believe that God speaks through his word. Nothing special about me. Uh, I mean, even to, to point this at me would, would destroy what we're talking about today. But what I really believe that God speaks, and he may be speaking to you this morning right now. And so our time of worship really is designed to help you kind of cook in that, to be in it. Some of you in this time of worship, you need to stand up and shout because you clearly hear what the Lord is saying. And you're like, man, I just, I need to worship him. It just now's the time. Some of you need to stay in your seat and write in your journal. Some of you need to pray. I don't know what you need right now. The Lord knows. We're just trying to give you space as a community to experience that. Does that make sense to you? So don't waste this. Lean into it. What these guys have planned for us right now is so beautiful and powerful. Let the Lord speak to you through the readings and through the songs uh, so that we don't leave believing that we went to church today. What a lie. We don't go to church. We are the church. If you went to church, it's almost over. But if you are the church, you're going to be the church more out there than you ever will be in here. 